and I'm going to read for us the verses we'll be talking about. Um, we will continue to see that uh, this doctrine of election and predestination continues to be a theme and why I hope this morning we'll see that. So this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let us pray for God's help this morning. Father, we pray that You would be working on us by this power of Your Spirit to know the Word, believe the Word, and act upon it. We pray this in the name of Your Son. Amen. So, predestination has played a role in several different ways in Paul laying out how we are saved, why we are saved, when the time in which election took place. And here, Paul is is spelling out that it wasn't just the beginning of your salvation that was predestined. It wasn't just the moment in which you would believe that God foreordained before the foundation of the world. It wasn't just adoption as sons that was planned. It wasn't just your good works that were spelled out. It is the finality of it. Um, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Have obtained an inheritance. And then later, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The inheritance that has been speaking of is the idea of the new heavens and the new earth. The fact that we will get a great inheritance. And that it's ours already. We have obtained it. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul speaks of it like this in the book of Romans. Uh, This is Romans chapter 8, towards the end of the chapter. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified, Again, glorified in the past tense, even though that hasn't occurred for us yet. And here also, we have, have obtained. It's a past tense. It's so sure that God does not tell us of it in the future. He says, it is ironclad done. Those whom he called, he also glorified. We have obtained the inheritance And then we will acquire possession of it. And so this is an important thing to think about. um, That there is a work of God that exists before the foundation of the world. For those who believe that is the beginning of salvation. Is the moment of salvation. Is the works of salvation. And is the final culmination of salvation. That it is all of it. Back here in the mind of God, before let there be, was ever spoken. And this is a promise that is for us. 
that we should take great hope in this. In fact, personally, this is the passage, these few verses, that took me into what is commonly called Calvinism or predestination or the sovereignty of God or whatever shorthand, reformed, whatever word you want to say, before I ever knew any of those words. So when I grew up, I grew up in mostly, when I was young, in fundamental Baptist churches um, and then a few other various churches. But in my formative years, right, until I was about 10 years old, fundamental Baptist churches. And one of the things... Uh, that is both good and bad about fundamental Baptist churches, is they emphasize decisional making for faith uh, to their detriment, I think. But it is good that they emphasize this idea of, are you saved? And one of the ways they do this, which I think is good, is they emphasize the fact that, are you a sinner? And they want you to agree, yes, I am in fact a sinner. I have done bad things. Uh, What it sometimes turns into, right, it can take two forms. Some people will say they're a sinner and pray a prayer and then never feel bad about bad things they ever do again. Um, And others of us, which was me, will continue to do bad things and feel horrible about it and so therefore rededicate his life every time there's a prayer prayed from the pulpit. And so there's a common method that happens, and it is this, at the end of a service there will be an altar call or... They'll say something like, every head bowed, every eye closed. Is there anyone in here who would like to dedicate their life to Christ for the first time or to dedicate their life again? And I, countless times, was the rededication kid. Uh, Came down to the altar, both at that church, the next church we went to, the Church of God, Russia Church of God. The next church we went to, the American Baptist Church, where we went to a Billy Graham crusade, and I went down for Billy Graham, went to like big conferences for youth and would go down to the altar and confess my sins and there was never any assurance because I was always sinning and I always knew I was sinning my parents are here you can ask them I was a prominent sinner Uh, there was no doubt that I did bad things but I had guilt associated with it most of the time I won't say all the time but most of the time I was aware that I did something bad I felt bad about it I had guilt I wanted to Leave that guilt, and I thought the way was to rededicate my life over and over. And then I read this passage, and I was 19 years old. And it said, the Spirit is our guarantee. And I went, there's a guarantee on this thing? And it's not that people had never talked to me about the fact that salvation is sure and You can trust Jesus, that he really did save you. I'm sure they said all sorts of true things that I should have heard and believed before that moment. But I remember reading this passage in New York, where actually my family's vacationing this summer, and going, what now? Who? I am not the one who is the guarantee of this whole event. Somebody else is, and that somebody is the Spirit of God. Why have I ever been concerned about my salvation? So I'm going to talk about this passage, and it's going to be a little personal, because I think it is very, very helpful. So you read that word guarantee. That word guarantee is a little bit misleading in the English, because they don't want to put this big word in, which is earnest money. 
That's really what the word means. It's a down payment. So when you read guarantee, you think of like the guarantee on the side of a box that's just written. This is more than just a written guarantee. This is a proceed, it is a transactional guarantee. The Spirit paid something. There is a down payment, an earnest money going on. Most of you in here have purchased a home. Some of you younger kids, I assume, none of you have bought a house. Antonin, you? Not yet. Okay. Uh, So when you buy a home, let's say it's a $200,000 home. You look at it, you decide, I'm going to buy this house. Something happens at that moment. You write a contract and you give something called earnest money. And it's usually $500, $1,000. It's a minuscule piece of that $200,000. And the reason you give that $500 or $1,000 is you're saying, I not only am making a contract that I'm going to buy this and signing my name to it, I'm giving you some actual cash that if I don't come back for it, it's just cash that I've lost. It's money out of my pocket. And I don't like to lose money because I'm an adult. And $1,000 pays for a lot of groceries. So I'm going to buy the house. But it's also just fractional. I mean, $200,000 house, all you got to do is give somebody $1,000 and it says you'll be back. Think of all this that happens. It's a guarantee that you will pay, but it's fractional. It's tiny. So then what is the seal of the Spirit that is our guarantee? Lots of things. Um, Initially, what the seal is, is just the opening of our eyes to the gospel. Um, This is, again, something that happens outside of ourselves. Jesus talks about this often. He says, I came to you speaking in parables so that it would blind the eyes of the blind. And then something has to happen. There's this moment, sorry, I went to the wrong Corinthians, um, that you have to have happen to you. And it's this. Um, Except for I still am in the wrong. There we go. The natural, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, natural meaning just a normal person who has not been born again, the naturally birthed person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given by God. That one of the first seals of the Spirit is just understanding and believing the gospel. All of a sudden, this foolishness that you have maybe ignored or maybe mocked or maybe half-believed but it you know, just doesn't matter to you suddenly becomes real. That is a seal of the Spirit. That is a transactional moment 
that the Spirit gives you eyes you didn't have, a heart you didn't have, a, a will you did not previously possess to do the things which please God, to see the things that are true about God, to believe them in your heart. That is the first seal of the Spirit. But he continues to give us things. He doesn't just leave us there after the initial moment of salvation, the initial moment of birth. But he gives further things to seal our life in Christ. Um, You could think of them um, in a lot of ways, but I think a helpful way to kind of encapsulate the whole rest of it is thinking about the fruits of the Spirit. So, this is Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Walking by the Spirit means the gifts of the Spirit, being manifest in your life. Basically this, one of the secondary seals of the Spirit that God shows to us as a seal is we will grow in godliness. We get gifts of the Spirit. We will no longer be angry all the time, but we will somehow start to be patient. Not because we took a self-help class, but because the Spirit is at work in us. And many other things like this. James puts it like this. You say you have faith. I say show it to me. Faith without works is dead. One of the seals of the Spirit is the fact that we actually do things that are godly. That we actually desire to please God. This is seen again if we go back to Ephesians. um, In chapter 4. The same idea, the sealing of the Spirit, is put in the negative context. And it says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That they're both and. The sealing happened, and one of the ways you prove the sealing happened is you don't grieve the Spirit, which means you're acting godly. You're acting in accord with the Spirit rather than in accord with the flesh. So these are secondary causes of the seal, um, or secondary proofs of the seal. The first is that you believe. The second is that you walk. And the biggest piece, though, is this invisible thing, right, that belongs to the first, a truth of God that's revealed to you that you wouldn't believe unless the Spirit revealed it, 
is that the spirit of our down payment, our earnest money, our guarantee for the inheritance we, until, we acquire, until we acquire it. And Hebrews says, God cannot lie. That the biggest help to us in the seal of the Spirit is that he awakens us to the truth that he doesn't ever lie. And one of the things he never lies about is our eternal redemption. It is ours in Christ Jesus. And this, I think, is, has been my biggest help. And it comes in a thousand ways. We can't afford the inheritance of the saints. We all sort of know this. So when you think about a house and buying a house, if I went to a bank and I said, hey, I'd like to buy this $200,000 house, I don't have any earnest money, I have no collateral, I have no job, I've burnt down 50 other houses, would you please give me the money for this house? What would the bank say to you? Get out. I'm afraid you'll burn down the bank. Right? We don't, we're not going to give you the money. You're not going to get the house. You have no right to a house. You're a lunatic. Get out. Right? You realize this is our same situation with God? We don't have money for a down payment, $500, $1,000. We don't have the money for the whole purchase. And not only don't we have the money, we have physically been burning down the things God has given us in our entire lives. We hate the good things he's already given us. Why would we ever get the best thing at the end? We hate everything else. We were enemies of God, hating him in our flesh. This is the way of the world. We do not have the money, but we also actively work against the idea of getting the inheritance. And we can't ever inherit it. And so when you think of what the Spirit does for us, it's more than just earnest money for a house. Earnest money for the inheritance. It's a complete reversal of what should actually happen in our lives. We have no rights to it. There's a great big house. I don't know who's, being, who's building it. I don't care. It's being built on St. Charles right now, just south of the church. It's a great big house on a hill. It's taken months to build, right, because it's, it's a house. It takes a lot of time. Probably longer because it's so big and it just takes more nails and wood. I guarantee that the person who built that has wealth that the bank looks at and says, okay, you can build that house. We'll back you. Or maybe they have the cash and they just paid up front. I don't know. They have rights to that house. I do not have rights to that house. If I decide tomorrow to drive up that big long driveway... And walk around like I own the place. What will happen to me? Well, they'll probably call the police on me. If anybody's there. I don't know if the construction crews are on site. But if you decide that you own a great big house. And you decide I'm going to start walking around in it. And you don't have a hard hat. And you don't have a badge. And you're not the owner. You're going to leave. This idea. Rumbles around in our head. Whenever we sin. Whenever we are in misery or doubt, whenever we have denied Jesus by something we've done, we are reminded of the fact that we don't actually 
have the money for this. And that, in fact, we don't deserve to even be on the property. And that something more sure than our sin has to redeem us, has to be our surety. And this is really important for us. Because all of those things, sin, doubt, denial, misery, whatever it is that you latch on to in your life, that is true, okay? Your sin that you do as a Christian is real. It's not fake. You actually did it. Your denial, like Peter, is true. It's real. You did it. Your misery and doubt of God's good things is true. It's real. You doubt it. The way through that is not to dwell on the misery, the doubt, the sin. It's to acknowledge them as real and true. That's the duty of a Christian to actually look at the situation and go, I did that. That's mine. I acknowledge that. And then what happens oftentimes is the tempter comes, the accuser comes. And he says, see, see, you don't deserve that house. You don't deserve that inheritance. That's not your property. You have no rights to that. Look what you did. Look what you did. You did this thing again. You said that thing again. You went this way again. That's the accuser. Now, you might think sometimes I'm like the accuser on a Sunday morning. But I don't want you to dwell on your sins. I just want you to be aware of your sins. Aware of your doubts. Aware of your failings. So that you can confess them. The accuser does not want you to confess. He does not want to bring to light the deeds of darkness. He wants them to be shrouded in darkness. And so he says, you don't belong over there in the light. You have no rights to that inheritance. It's not yours. You don't have the money for that. You could never afford that. And so he just pushes you out. And one of the weapons against this sort of thing is this. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. This is a famous quote from Martin Luther that I'm going to botch. But it's basically, you're right, Satan. All that and more. But I am Christ's, and none of that matters. And so the Spirit does that sort of work for us too. He is the absolute surety for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We will sin in countless ways. We will doubt the Savior's goodness and God's grace. We will be in misery for all sorts of reasons. We will doubt, we will deny None of those undo this. This happened apart from you. This is not your purchase. It was another's. And if he has said, this is your house, it is your house. Because he owns it. And he can give it to whoever he wants. When we think of Deed and title, um, it gets a little murky sometimes. Funnily enough, my parents and I randomly were talking about inheritance, inheritance last night. And inheritance, as you all know, can go wonky. 
It can look real bad based on all kinds of sins and miseries of this world. Here's the reality. This is an inheritance that never goes bad. And I don't mean like never rots like the things on earth rot. I mean the, the uh, what's it called when you finally let the will happen? When you make it true? Dispense of things, right? The, the, the estate gets dispersed. Whatever that moment is, that's when everything goes bad. You fight about it and then when the final moment comes, that's when the court cases come. That never happens with the inheritance of God. It never can happen. It's perfectly sealed by God himself who cannot lie and never makes a mistake and predestined the inheritance before time immemorial. This is such a sure thing that it can't be screwed up by us. And this is very good, very good news. I think that things like this are the reason that Peter did not just wander off into the unknown after that night. The reason that David was able to pray this. Now this is Psalm 53. This is David, the king of Israel. The warrior. He has slain his ten thousands. He has built the kingdom of Israel like no other before me. And this is David after he has sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed on the battlefront and been confronted by Nathan the prophet. This is Psalm 51 to the choir master. Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to what? According to my confession, according to da-da-da. No, according to your steadfast love. God is immovable. He loves me. Have mercy according to your own steadfastness. Blot, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. Real, true, actually did them. I am aware of them. They're bad. And my sin is ever before me. It's not unchristian to be miserable over sin. You should be miserable when you sin. It's part of the work of the Spirit. But then there's more. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So we're acknowledging that we sin and God is right And we are not. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing heart. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. We tend to think that we're the first, to, like the church is the one who figured out the Trinity. But there was an understanding of a proto-Trinity in the Old Testament. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is spoken of often. And here, David is crying out for the assurance of the seal of the Spirit of God for him. Don't take it away from me. Don't take it away from me. Give me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This is, before Ephesians was ever written, this is the faith of Ephesians 1. This is David having the exact same desire to be assured of his salvation in God through the Spirit's work within him. And it's ours. I have sinned in countless ways since that day when I was 19. Huge ways. David and Bathsheba sort of ways. Never had anybody murdered, but I would not put it past me. I was not, in many ways, going well. And I had every reason to think that I had no part in Christ. And you, if you're honest... Have times in your life where you have no reason to believe yourself to be in Christ. Because you have done really bad things. You have said really bad things. You have thought really bad things. Well, here is the truth. If you have been bought, sealed, purchased, down paymented for, you can't undo that. You cannot undo that. And if God has placed his seal on you, and you have understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you believe it, and your heart is broken, and you have a contrite spirit, and you cannot seem to get out of your sin, hear the word of God this morning, the gospel of power and truth. You are not the purchaser of your freedom. God is. The spirit is the one who guarantees your salvation, not you. You have no right to this inheritance. Unless, unless, you have the Spirit. And then, there is absolutely nothing you or anyone else in all the world can ever do to take it. The Spirit is our guarantee. And that guarantee is not new. It's old. From the beginning of time, time immemorial, God said, I will save, I will adopt, you will walk in good works, and you will come into the kingdom. And I will give you my spirit, and he will be the down payment. Final word on this. I spoke earlier about how a down payment is just like a fraction of the final. 
just a little piece of what actually the inheritance is. Now think about this. The gifts of the Spirit to the believer are innumerable and uncountable and unbelievable. Knowing the Word of God, believing it, the whole gifts of the Spirit, both the ones in Galatians and the gifts personally that He gives to us for the church and the good works that He helps us walk in. The gifts of the Spirit in comfort and love, time and time again, they save us. They're the down payment. They're a fraction of what we actually inherit. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. We get to inherit something that is unspeakably greater than the Spirit's work on us here on earth. And that is good work. It's the down payment. It's the earnest money. It's $500 on a $200,000 house. It's almost nothing compared to the inheritance that awaits. So if you think this is good, and it is... The inheritance that awaits is beyond anything we could possibly imagine because we don't even understand the down payment part of the goodness of it. We forget that part. And it's greater than that. Infinitely greater than that. This is what awaits us as Christians. It is far beyond anything we could hope or ask for. This is the hope of the saints. This is the hope that is grounded on the electing, predestining love of God before the foundation of the earth for us who believe. And so this doctrine has helped me a thousand times, maybe more, in the last 20 years of my life. 